0: broadcasting from Southern California this is Keith Daryl on the fight laugh feast Network this is campus reach podcast episode 23 why so, I welcome everybody to everybody, everybody to episode 23 of the Campus Reach Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. This is the Campus Reach Podcast, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the faith. And yes, I'm still broadcasting from Southern California. I've received a couple emails uh, from folks, um, as I've mentioned, different areas where I'm going to be, um, and they've followed. Followed up see when I'm coming through, and um, I'm, I'm still in Southern California. I keep telling myself for weeks that I'm leaving, and on Sunday, a friend's wife said, uh, weren't you going to leave last week? <laughs> and so the, the plan was to leave, um, but as some of my plans have fell through in traveling, I have decided to stay put, and another reason for staying put is I've been going down to Huntington Beach just to do a little evangelism, some open air, some one-on-one, and I've actually enjoyed it. It's not uh, quite campus. Um, things haven't really gotten going, going, but, uh, they've been some fruitful meetings. And I was down there, uh, this past weekend and had some interesting conversations, um, particularly on Saturday, I was down there with a friend and there was a, guy who is a disciple of a man named Michael Rood, I believe is his name. And as I approached the area, uh, basically at the pier, if you've ever been to Huntington Beach, there's a, a giant pier that everybody kind of hangs out. And there's kind of a uh, an open form ish area uh, there. And there was a guy with this giant, intricate uh, chart of Daniel's 70s weeks and all these arrows and lines and everything else of what's going to happen. And I kind of knew I didn't want to talk to him. I wasn't sure. But I was standing with a friend and finally I was like, all right, You distract him, uh, ask him for his four-minute presentation, and I'm going to look at his chart and see what he's got going on. And 20 minutes later, we're still interacting with the guy, and he was a straight stream of consciousness. And he was basically like a Jehovah's Witness at your door because he kind of knew his script, but once you took him off the script, he didn't know uh, where he was. So when he... Kind of articulate certain things from uh, Genesis chapter twelve and Genesis chapter fifteen. I'd push back a little bit um, regarding my understanding of those texts, and he'd be like, "I haven't really thought about it that way. I'll have to uh, look at that." And and that was his response to most things uh, when I'd push back. And uh, one of the things, the the most bizarre to me thing that he pushed forward was the idea that in Matthew chapter twenty four, when Jesus says, "No man knows the day or the hour," um, he says that's actually a Hebrew idiom. Where we can know the day and hour, and he tried to. It was a convoluted explanation, so it didn't really make sense to me. But he basically wanted to argue that it was a Hebrew idiom that meant Jesus would have returned, uh, will return in September, and I think he believed 2020 uh, Jesus was going to return and all that sort of stuff. So it was uh, pretty crazy and convoluted. He was part of a a Hebrew roots type movement, and he kind of thought being out there on Saturday was a Sabbath, and that was his. kind of his church service, and uh, it kind of went decently at this point, because we went back and forth a little bit, and David, who was with me, uh, brought up the idea of not meeting on uh, in a church. We were asking if he was part of a church and things like that, and he wasn't really clear on things like the Trinity, but as we are going through the church, I don't remember exactly how we got into, uh, I think it's First Corinthians 11, uh, where man comes from woman, woman from man. Um, and both are dependent upon each other, but a woman has a head covering. Uh, and the the disciple guy wanted to argue that that is, a reference to women's hair and not to any sort of like uh, hijab or anything like that. And so, um, but it was, it was interesting because in that context, he was basically saying he doesn't really need to meet in a church. But then when we started discussing that passage, he laid out the idea, well, you know, when you're meeting as a congregation and someone's up front talking, which he kind of contested, we don't need somebody up front talking. Uh, if you have somebody up, up front talking and, uh, there are little children running around, the women are more prone to take care of women. And then it was kind of like the idea of like, well, so here in first Corinthians chapter 11, you see that the early uh, Christians were gathering together as a congregation, listen to somebody preach. Don't you think you should do that? And he was kind of like, Hmm. And he didn't really have, I don't remember if he had an answer, uh, but that he kind of uh, paused, uh, there. And then on uh, Saturday night, there was, uh, uh, on Friday night, rather, preached and had some pretty good conversations, one-on-ones with people, and there was a young Christian man who's pretty zealous uh, in support for us. Um, but c- kind of my highlight was uh, there were two uh, young women. One, she, she had to be 18. She had to be a college student, I assume, and she was from England. She was with her cousin who couldn't been – couldn't have been but 12 or 13, and they're both uh, believers. Uh, the girl from England was definitely a believer, a little more in a charismatic uh, church, uh, and the girl uh, from Arizona was uh, just kind of a, a young girl trying to get her feet under her uh, in the faith, and I think her older cousin was trying to help her with that. But we had a pretty good discussion about uh, what it means to be a Christian, the love of God, the grace of God, and one of the Kind of cool things she's like, How do you have the whole Bible memorized? And I really don't have the whole Bible memorized by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but uh just laying out to her, well, do you have your all your favorite songs memorized? She was like, Yeah, I have my favorite songs I was like, Yeah, and that's basically what it is. You've immersed yourself in those songs. I've immersed myself in the Bible, so I'm able to know a handful of text, but I, I definitely don't have the whole thing memorized. And I actually don't have it as well memorized as I once did. So anyway, that um and I say that again just from a standpoint of uh, people want to talk, and people want to interact, and you'd be surprised if you're willing to go out, even take the initiative in doing evangelism. I realize it's kind of scary, and I'm not even a, a tracks guy, um, but even if you can find some good, genuine gospel tracks, and you can find a place in your area where people, like be it fairs, be it festivals, um, wherever people are kind of congregating, and just, you know, take the initiative, and what you'll find is people want to interact on these things. And if you're uh, able to lay out the gospel clearly and well and uh, with some gentleness and respect, you'll you'll find that people are drawn to it. So uh, encourage you to continue to do that. and kind of some uh, bad news or good news depending on how you want to look at it today. I learned that uh, Dr. Norman Geisler uh, passed away. He's a well-known Christian apologist and he was surprisingly uh, older uh, than I thought he was. I think he was like 84 years old. He may have been uh, older than that. Um, but he, uh, as I was thinking about him, There are two places where, in general, I haven't spent any time with his material in probably 21 years, 1998, 1999 was the last time I remember reading a book by him, uh, which was on the New Age movement, Um, but prior to that, I dabbled in his book that he was the editor of called Inerrancy, and uh, Greg Bonson has a chapter in there on on the original autographs um, that... Because you know, when we argue for inerrancy, oftentimes the unbeliever want to say, well, you don't have the original text, so you don't know what was in there. And Bonson had a chapter in there, and that's part of what criti- uh, 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 kind of text criticism is, is getting back to what they believe the text was. And that that leads into some of the debate over the King James-only people, or at least uh, uh, received text, not necessarily just King James, but what text we rely upon um, in in translating uh from the Greek into the English, and the, those things kind of play in. But the uh, but his book, Inerrancy, was a little bit over my head when I read it in college because I was a new believer. I was about two years... I, I didn't read the whole book, but I, it was my sophomore year. I was two years as a believer and just simply didn't know a lot of the issues they were addressing. So it was a little bit over my head or quite a bit over my head at the time. Um, and it was in another context, and I wish I could remember it better. Uh, but the thing that I learned from him, and it was like revolutionary at the time. So I was a sophomore in college, and we were looking at the issue of agnosticism, because when you're in college, uh, a lot of people just want to be agnostic and say, well, we can't know anything about God. Uh, We can't know anything about that realm. Um, So we kind of have the material world and sense impressions that we can know. um, But if there is an invisible realm, uh, we can't really know that world. And and it's it's so simple. It's funny. I'm so used to it now, but at the time, like I said, it was, a, it was revolutionary. It was a lightning bolt. Um, he just laid out that in order to say, you know, we can't know anything about God, uh, you kind of just ask the question, uh, you know, how do you know that we can't know anything about God or why can you make that claim? Uh, Because in order to say we can't know anything about God, he's so wholly other, he's so transcendent, he's so up there, he's so big, he's so grandiose. In order to say those things, you're actually making uh, knowledge claims about God and why you can't know anything about him. And so in in that sense, the agnostic who makes more of the definitive claim, we can't know— um, and, and it's much more in that that full affirmation of what we, we can't know that realm, we can't know those things. Um, that's actually a knowledge claim to a realm. And so where, does, where do we get the right to say, here's a realm of knowledge that we can't know anything about, and we'll, we'll carve that out and put that over here into uh, a realm of agnosticism that we can know nothing about it. And When he laid out the idea that the person saying we can't know that realm, in order to know what's in that realm and to place things in there, free will, God, uh, ethics, whatever it may be, um, is actually a claim to knowledge of those things. And that was probably – and I didn't really think about it until – uh, his passing today, but that was probably one of the most revolutionary things for me very early on in my faith, and it kind of got me into apologetics and interested into uh, basic philosophy and the use of logic and in interact with other people, and that Christianity uh, does have logical explanations, because at that, up to that point, to me, you know, I'm, I was I was an all right red kid um, I thought yeah that's a tough thing to say when when someone says up oh, God's so holy other and and it also even seems humble uh, in a way it seems kind of pious to say yeah the God uh, God or gods are so holy other we don't really know them uh, that that sounds actually sounds pretty good in a way Um But in another way, it sounds, uh, that ends up sounding awful. But intellectually, it's bankrupt. So that was uh, Norman Geisler for me back in uh, 1994, I believe. And so look forward to the resurrection of the body and the life of the age to come. And I'll be able to uh, fellowship with uh, Norm Geisler in person uh, one day. And so I'm going to wrap up, uh, at least in a sense, the series on uh, pluralism And one of the other things uh, I want to address is is when you think of religions and when other people talk about religions, one of the most common things is why are there so many religions in the world? And oftentimes you'll hear an atheist say something like, oh, we're just like you Christians. We we just add one more God that we don't believe in. And so that sounds oftentimes like maybe an okay apologetic or at least – depending on who you are. It sounds like an alright idea coming from the atheist. But oftentimes we do argue against, say, Islam or even, um, say, a Hindu or some Buddhist or whatever other uh, religion may be that, uh, you know, we argue in terms, oftentimes, I think, in atheistic terms of why they don't know their God. And one of the things I want to do in terms of pluralism is try to set out the idea that other religions are experiencing other gods. And by gods, I'm simply using the Hebrew word Elohim, which um, is the Old Testament word for God. And I'm I'm building this out of a gentleman named Michael Heiser, who has been very helpful to me. Um, actually, back in 2012, I was debating a professor at the university, or Iowa State University, named Dr. Hector Avalos. And in his book, The End of Biblical Studies he tries to lay out the idea that um, part of what biblical studies currently does is it kind of tries to— Uh, carve off the sharp edges of the Old Testament or the New Testament. And so what biblical studies do is, he claims, it's kind of almost like it's held captive by Christian thought, and it tries to make the text actually Christian when the text is really diverse and, uh, you know, things like polytheistic and not monotheistic. And one of the ways that he argued that was in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 32. In verses 8 and 9, it says, um, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance... When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the numbers of peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God, God, uh, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. And so Dr. Avalos, when I was, re- was reading this book, uh, The End of Biblical Studies in 2011, 2012, he uh, basically wanted to argue that in verse 8 when it says, when the Most High, he wanted to make a distinction uh, between that God, which would be Elyon, um, uh, but the Lord's portion or Yahweh's portion is his people in verse 9. So he wanted to make a distinction between those two gods and say Elion is the Most High, um, Yahweh, or Lord, is his son, and he received one of the allotments, is what he argues in this book. I'm not going to address that too much today, um, or I'm not going to address it at all. Uh, Michael Heiser, if you Google uh, Michael Heiser and you put an Elion and Deuteronomy 32, 8, and 9. Um, he has a pretty technical article, and you can just kind of skim it to uh, get the basic gist that um, the argument really isn't that strong. And I even feel, it's kind of funny, because I even feel like Dr. Avalos uh, knows that in this book. And so I'm going to read a uh, brief section of the book, because what he, so if you're looking at verse uh, 32, verse 8, it says according to the numbers of the sons of God, and even in my ESV app here, uh, number two, it says compare Dead Sea Scroll Septuagint Mesoretic text, uh, which says Israel. So um, some texts may say according to the number of the sons of Israel, um, and so that difference between whether or not you want to go with the sons of God or the sons of Israel, um, he wants to argue is uh, signs of polytheism. And the fact that the Masoretic text, uh, the Hebrew Bible, um, changed it to the sons of Israel shows that they knew that there was this problem with polytheism in this verse, and so they had to change it. And here's what Dr. Avalos says. He says, the more obvious case of polytheism is the reference to what the NAB translates as the sons of God. In most pantheons of the ancient Near East, the gods were believed to have divine fathers and mothers, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are the oldest manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible, still preserve the probably older reading of Sons of El or Sons of Elohim. The Sons of El would be gods, fathered by the god named El. The fact that ancient editors recognized the polytheistic nature of this expression, Sons of El, probably led the editors to the standard text, called the Masoretic Text, of the Hebrew Bible to change gods to Sons of Israel. Some Greek translations have angels of God instead of sons of God or gods. The new revised Version, an American multi denominational translation, does adopt the more original polytheistic expression according to the number of the sons of God reflected in the Dead Sea Scrolls. However, other modern translations still do not fully reflect the polytheism of the passage etc. And so the, the basic idea there is if you sit down, you read this text, and it says, according to the number of the sons of God, he wants to say, look, in the ancient Near Eastern context, the Bible's written, this idea of sons of God would be indication that, look, there's a bunch of other gods out there, and it's actually a sign of polytheism. Um, now there are several different ways we can uh, address this issue of whether the Old Testament's polytheistic or not. But uh, and I think the simplest way, even in context of this verse, is in 32.8 when it says the Most High. And now, granted, I'm assuming that the Most High and Yahweh are the same and uh, are one. And, and so if you think about it, there, the Old Testament does present that there are many Elohim, um, and which is just the, the Hebrew word for gods, and or God or gods, and there is a Most High. And so depending on how you want to use the term gods, and one of the things where Michael Heiser was helpful for is he wanted to use the term Elohim more in the context of um, what he would call uh, the unseen realm. And so even if you think in the New Testament, Colossians, where uh, Jesus is uh, the creator of uh, thrones and powers and principalities and rulers, um, this is kind of like a spiritual hierarchy backing the cosmos. And so... uh, Colossians chapter 1 kind of hits at that, Ephesians chapter 6, where it talks about we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and powers and principalities of this present dark age. And so what's actually going on in the Old Testament is that you do have a, an invisible realm, according to Colossians 1, and you do have rulers and powers and principalities and authorities. Uh, the Old Testament recognizes some of these figures as being Elohim. And so that's what I think in part is going on in Deuteronomy chapter 32, is that um This verse is actually a reference back to the Tower of Babel. When did God divide the nations according to the sons of God? Um, I believe that's a reference back to... uh uh, Genesis chapter 11 and when he divided the nations and what actually happened um, when God divided the nations is he put these Elohim over the nations and he said but Israel is mine and we end up seeing things very practically um, like in the whole Exodus story is how God sends his judgment upon the gods of Israel and so if there are no gods Elohim over uh, Israel over uh, Egypt if there are no Elohim over Egypt. God's kind of playing the king of the mountain over nothing. So imagine, you know, if I'm the only podcast that exists and I sound, this is, I'm the greatest podcast, watch me destroy all other podcasts. And there are no other podcasts. Um, you just be like, that's pretty goofy. And so if, if Yahweh is destroying the gods of Egypt and they don't actually exist or have some sort of ontological status, um, that's it's really a demonstration of power over nothing. Uh, yet the very nature of what's going on in the Exodus is Yahweh is showing his power over the nations. Um, he doesn't just have power. He's not a local deity. He just has power over some land in the Middle East, um, Israel. But he has power over Egypt. And not only that, he has power over um, Pharaoh's heart, which is where the the, the thoughts uh, or the the decisions of the gods would have been uh, made is in the heart of Pharaoh, and Yahweh is even able to harden his heart. So what the, the Exodus story actually teaches is that Yahweh is the most high and has authority over everything, and That's also, I think, in part what Genesis 1 is teaching. Uh, so the purpose in mentioning all that is this. So when we think of the issue of pluralism, and you're interacting with a Muslim, and you're interacting with people from foreign lands and wherever they may be coming, or even now as paganism and New Age spirituality grows, I was actually getting a haircut probably about two years ago, and a guy was talking about how he Worships the sun. And so as as paganism grows, I I do think people uh, will experience real Elohim, real gods. And so what we don't have to do is deconstruct their stories in the sense that your god doesn't exist. Um, What we are addressing in that context is that their God is not the most high. And in some respects, it might look a little bit like um, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Um, You know, Yahweh has complete sovereignty over all the prophets of Baal. Um, And there are, uh, you know, if if we were to get into this more, there are a bunch of texts that seem kind of strange that we could address. But the basic idea of what I want to lay out tonight is so when people bring up, even ask you, why are there so many different religions? Uh, we can point back to the Tower of Babel. Obviously, it was in, in, instituted before that when uh, Adam and Eve listened to the voice of the serpent. So it's basically a part of not listening to the voice of God. We get handed over. So in our context, we might think be a little more comfortable with uh, Romans chapter 1, that um, when we, you know, we did for the wrath of God has been revealed, uh, we did not thank God. Therefore, God hands us over to degrading passions, and he hands us over to all sorts of iniquity. Well, that's in a similar fashion of what happened in Genesis chapter 11. Uh, they did not worship the true God, so God handed them over uh, to other gods, and yet he allotted Israel as his people to and ultimately to bring about salvation to the world. And part of what we're doing now in our evangelism of why we wrestle against flesh and blood and rulers and powers and principalities is we're going back into those lands where these other Elohim rule and reign, the sons of God rule and reign, and we are going in and we are conquering them in God's true sons, uh, under God's true son, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, Jesus is the... Uh, only begotten. He's the unique one. He is the uh, eternal word made flesh. And so he is uh, distinct from all these other uh, sons of God that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and Job chapter 1 and Psalm 82. Uh, Jesus is of a radically different uh, nature. He's eternal. He has no beginning and no end. All these other Elohim or sons of God are created beings. So when you think of doing evangelism and pluralism comes up and we're, you know, we're going into foreign lands and we're conquering and we're battling, um, you need a little bit of Genesis chapter 11 and Deuteronomy 32 as your backdrop to help us understand, you know, why we have a pluralistic culture and even why it's so chaotic right now, because we have, I, I do think that we have a bunch of gods jockeying for power, so to speak. Um, I'm a good Calvinist, so don't hear what I'm not saying, but you do have, um, rebellious powers and we have to recognize that. And part of what Jesus is doing, as we learn in Colossians chapter one, he is sovereign over all of them. He is the image of the invisible God. And these other gods or Elohim are not. And, uh, you know He's reconciling all things to himself, and that's part of our evangelistic mission. Um, so that, I, 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 this is, I think for me it's helpful in my evangelism. It's helpful in my interaction with people who are of other religions and other spiritualities uh, because I don't have to deny their experiences. Um, what I want to point out, though, is that their experiences are not of the Most High God, and Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection is... And he's triumphed over these powers and principalities. So that's what I wanted to get at tonight. So uh, if you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations regarding that, because I realize it's a lot there and I kind of zipped through it quite a bit, um, feel free to contact me, Keith, at CampusReacher.com. You can also contact me on the Twitter, Campus Evangel, and... I think those are the main methodologies to get in touch with me. Um, so, yeah, any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, explorations, feel free to get in touch with me, and I will be heading out of Southern California. I'm not going to say that because i may Audible. The game plan is to head out of Southern California on uh, Sunday and race across the United States. I will uh, leave here, go through Colorado. Uh, will not be in Iowa. I do hope to stop in... Indiana and Ohio and then I'll hope to get to New York City from there then I'm going to drop down into uh, North Carolina and Alabama and Florida so if you're anywhere along that route feel free to holler at me and those of you who have I will follow up with you as I get closer to the dates of coming to your city and Lord willing I look forward to meeting and fellowshipping and you know, maybe there's a spot we can some evangelism. alright the Lord runs on his way there's no time to be going slow Hurry, take what you've got, do with it what you can. Because the good God in heaven needs us, so we're in the land. Some seed fell by the wayside, some of it fell among...